For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness or for justification. For Moses writes of the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith says this, do not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near, even in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith, which we proclaim. Because if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. For the scripture says, every one believing on him shall not be put to shame. For there's no difference between both the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without preaching? Gospel confession. That's the topic today. And I'll talk about both of those words as we go along. Now, I don't have this in my notes, but I was thinking this, this message here is really, if, if I was to introduce anyone to our church or ministry, maybe someone I worked with or someone I've been talking to and trying to say, you must believe the gospel. And I'm going to spell out what the gospel is and how you latch on to that gospel in this message. So it's there's some basic things, but hopefully we can pull some things out that maybe we've never thought of before and see things from a different angle. But as we're talking with people, and some of you know that talk to people about the gospel of Christ, it's not an easy task today, witnessing or preaching the gospel to people because of the increasing amount of their exposure to scripture twisting. They come with preconceived notions already in their head that are not right, and they have a bias. And on top of that, as Rob read in the introductory text in the scripture reading in Ephesians 2, people come into this world spiritually dead. They're already uh, at, a, at a handicap to hear this and understand it. They can't unless the Spirit of God does a work in their heart. So there's that natural humanism or natural self-righteousness that's there in place. And I can't defeat that. All I can do is talk about what the scripture says about it. And the Holy Spirit has to be the one to open up their minds. So the particular scripture twisting, I believe, out there in religion is mainly in the area of what the gospel is and how people are saved. Those, I think, are the two basic things. 
And we talk about those a lot uh, every week here. And this mess out there in the religious world will determine what a person thinks about Christ. That is the issue. What do you think of Christ? Who is he? What has he done? Now, this section here in Romans 10 that I read, uh, I believe probably, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this. I, I think this is probably the second most misinterpreted section of Scripture in the Word of God. Second to John 3.16. Especially on how people are to be saved. Uh, we know about the invitation system, altar call, sinner's prayer. This is the area that they take and twist. And uh, we'll be looking at a few of those things. You know, I don't have enough time that I want to to uh, even deal with the notes that I have as usual. But I'm going to try to get through this and, and just kind of generally cover it. Back up a little bit to Romans 9 at the end. And let's grab some of the context there in verse 30. Romans 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles, now some versions, more modern versions, say nations, that the Gentiles or nations, in other words, the non-Jews, who did not pursue after righteousness have apprehended righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, these are the, the Jewish people that were involved in the old covenant system, which involved law-keeping and the sacrifices and so on. But Israel, which pursued after the law of righteousness, have not attained to the law of righteousness. Next question, why? Why is that? Because they, Israel, they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Because they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Now, my version, I'm reading from the modern King James Version, Stumbling Stone is capital S. It's talking about a person. It's talking about Christ. He is the stumbling stone. Verse 33, as it is written, and that is in Isaiah 8.14, that's where it's written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, and here's the second name for Christ in this verse, rock of offense, and whoever believes on him, shall not be ashamed. So let's go to our, our text there and, and, and look at a few things in um, verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, we have looked at this so many times, and um, some of this is for the benefit of people, you know, on Facebook and Sermon Audio and, and so forth, but uh, there are some newer people here that we haven't looked at with them 150 times over the years. So we're going to, some of these things here, we need to really like remember these things. These are foundational and fundamental. And when you're talking to people, these right here, these principles, truths that are in these verses here, you need to get a hold of and remember them and use them when you're dealing with people concerning the gospel. Verse one, Paul starts out and he says, brothers, which reminds me that Paul writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is writing to believers. He's writing to saints. You can go back when you get time and look at the first few verses. He's, he's talking to people that believe the gospel. He's not talking to anybody else. Somebody who asked me the other day about, you know, we believe that God only loves the elect and that Christ only died for the elect. You know, they'll go to verses in letters like this and it 
says for us and things. And I remind him, look at the, it's talking to believers. So let's keep that in mind when he says this. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, these, these religious people. And by the way, this is, Paul came out of this, this culture. This is the religion he was in before. He was steeped in the teachings of the old covenant. He was a, he was a genius in that religion. He talked about in Philippians 3 about all those things he was in that religion that he used to be able to brag about which God gave him grace to repent of at his conversion. His prayer to God for Israel is that they be saved. So right off the bat, whoever he's talking about, these ones that are in this religion, they're not saved. They're not believers. They're not justified. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not elect, chosen before the foundation of the world, because they might be and they have not believed the gospel yet. They're still breathing. Paul's saying, I'm praying for these people that they would believe, right? So we don't have any right to say you're a non-elect reprobate to a person that is still breathing. Can't do it. These people, these were the ones trying to be righteous by obeying the law. Also note this, that there were some that were in this nation of Israel that were Jews or Hebrews, however you want to say it, that were believers, Paul himself was. He deals with that in the next chapter. But the vast majority were unbelievers. But according to, I'll just quote this real quick. It's just in the next chapter, Romans 11, 5. He said, at that present time, there was a remnant of these people who were chosen to salvation. It says, according to the election of grace, a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant meaning a, a smaller part of a large piece. So I wanted to clarify those things so, you know, newer people that are maybe listening would know we're not just like blanket statement and covering that without qualifying. Verse 2, I bear them record. Paul says, I'm a witness to this by watching these people. I used to be in it, I know, that they have a zeal of God. They're excited. They have fervor. They have sincerity. They're serious. They're not playing games. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. We have studied several times in um, John 17, 3, that eternal life is knowing God. They use the name of God here, these people that Paul's talking about. They use the name of God, and then they just do religious things. They're excited about doing religious things, but they don't know God. So they don't have that knowledge that is... We're going to get to it. It's the knowledge of God that's in this gospel. And this is what the next verse is going to tell us. What are they ignorant of? For they, these religious people that are, that are not saved, they being ignorant of, notice this phrase, God's righteousness. As we go through here, we're going to start to see what that phrase means. And they're going about in their activity to establish their own righteousness, of course, which opposes God's righteousness, does not meet the standard of God's righteousness. And notice that they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. There has been no faith towards the righteousness of God. There has been no repentance from their own righteousness that they're going about to establish. God has not by grace given them repentance from that activity of self-righteousness. 
So they were still in this mindset of, well, sin got us into this thing. I know the answer. Obedience will get us out. That's the natural thinking process. So they were trying to keep the law all the while being ignorant of the gospel itself. And this phrase, God's righteousness, and later on, the righteousness of God, as mentioned in chapter one. Let's go there real quick. Chapter one, of, uh, and we're going to come back. Uh, we're going to pretty much stay in Romans. Let's go to Romans one. You're familiar with this in verse 16. I'm going to go back and grab this phrase. God's righteousness or the righteousness of God. We're going to start to talk about and develop what this means and what it's saying in its context. Verse 16 starts out with this idea of being ashamed. Now, we have already read two verses that talk about shall not be put to shame. And here Paul talking to the saints there at the church of Rome, believers. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Two things at least, I want, there's, there's more than two things I like to deal with, but two things I want us to see here. Those that believe the gospel are not ashamed of the gospel. You want to see somebody compromising, somebody that's a, a false prophet, a false teacher, they're ashamed of the gospel. They're either going to talk against it, they're going to avoid it, they're not going to talk about it. When it comes up, they're going to trim it down, they're going to water it down. It's because they're ashamed of it. And this gospel, when it's preached in, in its clarity, will bring persecution. There's a promise of that. Secondly, another thing I want us to see is this means that salvation has to do with faith or believing the gospel. There is, there is no other means of salvation than faith. And we know that faith opposes works to attain Salvation and even grace plus works is still just as bad as works by itself. There's no difference. One is more subtle, we know. The false prophets uh, will camouflage grace with works to try to slide those things in. We told, last week we talked about those words that these foolish teachers use to beguile people, to deceive people. And that's part of it. Grace plus works. And if it's not works initially, it's works on down the line that they'll add to. Like you got to do this to stay saved or to, or to become holier. So in the end, we can look at your sanctification and judge whether or not you've really been justified. That's works plus grace. Which is no grace, scripture says. Romans eleven six says it's no grace. Verse 17 and, and here's, here's where we start to get to defining some things. For in it, talking about this gospel, that's the power of God and the salvation. For in that gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. So we see this phrase, the righteousness of God. It equals God's righteousness in our text in verse 3 of chapter 10. They being ignorant of God's righteousness. This is what they were ignorant of here in verse 17. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. 
talking about the same thing. Now, this vital or essential ingredient must be a part of the gospel to qualify as the gospel. Just no getting around it. And it is the very power of God in the salvation. Verse 17 shows us why the gospel is the power of God in salvation. The word for means because. So this is why it's the power of God in salvation. Because of what this is contained in it and revealed the righteousness of God. And if that's not a part of the ingredient, then you don't you don't have the gospel and it's not the power of God and salvation. And then there's this phrase sort of in the middle or toward, maybe toward the end of that verse 17 from faith to faith. And a lot of times people have a hard time with, well, what does that mean? I've heard like three different views. I don't even know what the other two are, but I believe that it means from the message, the faith. Defend the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Jude says that, that we are to contend for the faith. That body of doctrine that is contained in the gospel is the faith. We talk about, we have an articles of faith or confession of faith. It's, it's just what we believe concerning the gospel. It's that body of truth that's to be believed about the person work of Christ. So from faith... From the, the message or the gospel to the person believing the gospel is what that is saying. So this is where God creates faith powerfully in his people. The message is brought as a means. The Holy Spirit is there. And there is activity done to the person in the person's mind, taking out the, the old heart, giving them a new heart or mind. And gives them faith, as we've looked at so many times, and I just can't get tired of thinking about it. In Ephesians 1, it talks about that this very same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead is the very same power that works in a person to cause them to believe the gospel. And that is where faith is created in the mind of the believer, by the power of God. It's the gift of God. It's, it's not an offer. And Okay, here's an offer. You want faith, and then you do your own thing. Do you see the contrast of difference here? It's the very same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead. And that has nothing to do with free will. That has something to do with the will of God and the action of God powerfully turning this person's world upside down, making them see where they were blind before. So remember also, again, we have to have the means of the gospel in place. We're going to see, if we don't get to it later, I'm going to quote it. But in our text, shortly after the verses that I read, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And, of course, we know the Spirit is present and, and acting in that atmosphere when that happens. You know, I've heard stories, and you probably have too, of these mystical uh, conversion experience where uh, people don't know anything about Christ, nothing about the gospel. They've just generically heard about him. And uh, I heard a guy, when I was going to the seminary, some guy said, uh, I was just yeah, going out and taking my garbage cans out and looked up in the sky and saw something. And that was it right there. That was it. It doesn't match. Another person, um, his, his grandfather was in a car wreck, thrown through the windshield. The Bible went a little further. The Bible was open and had a blood drop from his grandfather's head. And that was the sign. And that was the verse. And, it, and the verse he quoted, I can't remember, had nothing to do with what we're talking about. It was a, a mystical sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks after sign. There's only one sign given, and it's the sign of Jonas, who was in the heart of the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And it refers to this, what we're talking about, the gospel, Christ, his person, his work. 
the stories could be piled up of the silliness and the distraction of what the gospel is and how people are saved. And you just, you could have a 10 volume set of just silliness, right? Unless God opened our eyes and showed us that, we would be in those volumes of silliness. Because I had some deception of some of the goofiness I was involved in before I believed the gospel that would be in the silliness books. So far, we've seen the lie of salvation by the law. That's been exposed clearly in some of these texts we've looked at. Salvation is not by the law with man's hands in the law doing it. No way. Man can't do it. It's pretty blatant, you would think, but we still talk to people who think that way. And again, that's the natural way to think. And even if it's to the law in some degree, even if it's a small degree. Now, let's look more specifically about the gospel itself as we go into seeing Christ performing the gospel. And let's go over to Romans chapter 3 and start reading in verse 21. Romans 3, 21. But now, some versions do this differently. Some say, but now a righteousness of God. Some say, but now the righteousness of God. And I can see the benefits in both. We need a righteousness, right? When you say something about a righteousness, that means there are other false righteousnesses that that the righteousness competes against and is up against and is the antithesis of, the opposite of. Either way, it's helpful. I think both, both are helpful. But now the righteousness of God, there's that phrase again, has been revealed. We, we just read that, right? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Apart from the law, apart from man's hands on the law, having to do something with the law, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Uh, Paul's here saying even, even in the, the gospel was even in the Old Testament. Still a, a little remnant believed it, but it was there. It was witnessed in the Old Testament. A righteousness apart from the law, even though the Old Testament talked all about the law. Now, when we say apart from the law, we have to bring back this idea that Christ himself must deal with the law. The law is involved, just not with man. The law is involved with Christ. He was born under it, he kept it, and he satisfied the penalty of it. So you just can't get the law and toss it out so that it has nothing to do with salvation. It does when Christ is dealing with it. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, when, you know, sometimes when that language there is used, uh, even, it's kind of like it's talking about redundancy. It's like, this is, this is the one I'm talking about, even this one. He's already talked about it. He says, even this one here, bringing your attention to this is the one I mean. And he adds to it, the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ toward all and upon all who believe, for there's no difference. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why there's no difference. All are sinners. And it says that earlier in this chapter, that they're all guilty under the law. And their mouths are stopped because none have kept the law and there's none good and none righteous. 
That's in chapter this same chapter 3. Now, notice, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I have the habit of saying that Jesus Christ himself is the glory of God, and I, I believe that's the proper interpretation of that. He's the glory of God. He's the standard of God. In chapter 5, verse 6, you don't have to turn there. It says, while we were yet sinners without strength in due time, Christ died for good people, the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. So those are those, in verse 23, that have fallen short of the glory of God. The ungodly. These are chosen sinners who've fallen short, who've missed the mark, who can't keep the law, who are law breakers. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification means to be declared perfectly righteous by God based on the righteousness of Christ. So that's, in other words, that's grace. Notice here he says, justified freely. In other words, no cost to the people being justified, no payment by them. The payment comes from Christ. It says through the redemption, it has to do with payment, his blood that is in Christ Jesus. So no cost to the believer, no works, no merit, not even any conditions. What is that payment? We just alluded to it a second ago. We're justified freely. The payment is the merit or the value of the blood of Christ, or in other words, the work of Christ on the cross. It has value to the Father. That's the point. He's qualified to be this one. He does it right. He followed and fulfilled all the conditions, and that complete sacrifice, as we're going to see here in a minute, was satisfactory in payment toward the penalty. Verse 25 whom God, God the Father, he set him forth, which God the Father seemingly has done that a lot. He set him forth and he's, he put Christ out in preeminence in all things. And here he does it in salvation, the work of salvation. God set him forth to be a, and here's a word we need to know what it means, propitiation. And it means a satisfaction of God's law and justice. He satisfies the wrath of God toward the penalty of sin and the guilt and condemnation of sin. It's a satisfactory work. And if it is not satisfactory, then the word propitiation, throw it away. It won't work. It has to be an effectual, satisfactory work that is successful for it to even qualify. Set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare, here it is, his righteousness through the passing by of sins that had taken place before in the forbearance of God. Christ is the fulfillment of the mercy seat. We've talked about before how that the tax collector or publican was praying and the Pharisee, the self-righteous was over there. He was bragging about his works, but the publican said, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the word he was using there, 
had to do with the mercy seat, which was equivalent to propitiation. I need a propitiation. I need a satisfactory sacrifice to take care of my sins. This other guy over here said, I got it myself. I'm not like this guy. I don't need that. Right? He was going about to establish his own righteousness where this one had been humbled and his eyes had been opened. He said, I need mercy. I need mercy. So Christ is the fulfillment of that Old Testament type there, that, that picture and shadow of the, of the Ark of the Covenant where the angels were and where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And it typified Christ coming and shedding his blood to affect forgiveness and justification of his people. So he was a satisfying, a, a suitable sacrifice. He was the lamb without spot or blemish to take away the sin of his people. All those people that were scattered throughout all the world in different generations, different cultures, different races, out of every tongue, kindred, tribe that you can imagine. These are God's people, his sheep, his chosen, his elect. Verse 26, for the display of, again, his righteousness at this time, for him to be just and the justifier of them who believe in Christ. Now, this display of righteousness that Christ performed shows God the Father to be a God of justice and a God of love when he justifies these people for whom this death was for. Now, this is a part that is just not talked about at all today. Because it's, it's this fire escape mentality that where people come down the aisle and repeat a prayer and they're okay and they don't even know anything about the gospel. If anything, they'll look at the, the cross as something that is a, a gimme thing. Give it to me. You know, I don't, I don't know what happened there, but I just want to get out of hell. Give me that. And I, I understand all I got to do is come down and do this thing and I get it, right? Well, and even those that may be religious and self-righteous, they might say, no, we're not saved that way. But after we're saved, we know a little bit about the cross. But after we're saved, we do these other things to prove ourselves and to gain favor and to, to reach great heights and to be able to say we are personally righteous and personally holy and we're doing a good job and like the Pharisee, we're not like those other people. We're not like those other, those people are antinomian. They're against the law. We're not, we're not like them. You know, look down their nose and make that noise. I've seen it. I see it every day. So those are the two types that don't get it here. This performance of the righteousness of God by the Lord Jesus Christ was to his father. It was a sacrifice to his father primarily. And we get the benefits of it. He was glorifying his father and his father was glorifying him in it. And if you don't understand a sufficient, effectual, particular redemption, you just won't get that. All you'll do is look at the cross and shed a tear for poor Jesus that's trying to do stuff. If you can like he's part A and you're the catalyst that stirs it up and makes it work. He's done all he can do and the rest is up to you. That's the typical religion today. That's blasphemy. 
So he's both a just God and a savior when he justifies these people because it has to do with equity. It has to do with justice. It has to do with, with fairness in the scales of the balance of law and justice. God doesn't cheat, in other words. He's faithful to his character. Somebody's got to die and die satisfactory for this sin. And humans can't do it. They can't do like a partial percent and Christ does the rest. Christ has to do it all. We've got to keep our hands out of it. He gives us repentance to keep our hands out of it. We can't touch it. We can't offer strange fire on the altar. We have too much respect and reverence for the holiness and, the, and the, the character of God and his justice and righteousness and holiness and faithfulness and majesty and glory and on and on and on. So what had taken place here at the cross where there was an actual, legal, real transfer of the sin of the elect, of God's chosen sheep. This sin was in the mind of God in his courtroom was legally, you can't see it with the naked eye. You have to hear the word about it. The gospel says it. There's a transfer of that sin to Christ on Christ's account. And it was so real and effectual that when that took place, that Christ, he now owned it. He became legally condemned and guilty for those sins. The father did this transfer of this sin to Christ, made him legally guilty and condemned for the sins of somebody else, not his own. He didn't have any sin. And we know that Christ knew that this was to take place ahead of time. Christ, he signed up for this. He voluntarily took this job on. He condescended down from his throne to do this, to do the will of the Father. He knew that this is how that it had to take place. And he was motivated by his love for his people and honoring the father in this sacrifice. And he took the penalty of those sins. And as those sins were on him, he paid for those sins in full by what? By taking on the wrath of God that was directed toward those sins that offended God's holy character. God is offended at sin. He He's of too pure eyes to behold evil and let it slide. He's faithful to his own character. He must punish sin. So as a result of Christ finishing that work of satisfaction, which is propitiation, he, he finished it, by the way. And we know that because when he was done with it, he said, it's finished. And when that took place, of course, we know he laid down his own life voluntarily. He said, I got the power to lay it down and take it up again. He, all authority is given unto me, he said, to do this for these people, John 17, 2. And he died and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, which shows that the father said, that sacrifice is acceptable. And he raised him from the dead. And now he is able to, because of that activity, justify or declare righteous his people with that very righteousness that Christ worked out, brought in and merited for those people. That satisfactory, meritorious work of that sacrifice. So that whole activity is considered the establishment of righteousness by Christ. 
he's got a couple names connected with that. Um, talks about if we sin, we have an advocate with, advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. Another name I like a little bit better um, that he has given his people that actually we have taken on as his as his bride. The church is his bride and we are called what he is called the Lord, our righteousness. That is a righteousness outside of ourself. It's the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness Christ established that met the standard of God, satisfied him. This is justification. This is what the message of the righteousness of God is that's, that's revealed in the gospel. This, this truth is basic to the gospel, basic to the book of Romans, and basic to the whole Bible. And, and we cannot budge from this truth. Let's go down to verse 27. So we've looked so far at what Christ did to perform the gospel, talking about his death and his merit, his blood, his righteousness. I want to move on to how a person is saved or receives salvation. And we want to finish a little bit here in um, uh, chapter 3. And we're going to go back to chapter 10. And we're going to run out of time. We're going to, I'm going to stop way before I was wanting to, but that's okay. Verse 27. So after saying all this, Paul says, where then is boasting? Where, where's your bragging? You got any space to brag? He said, it is excluded. Your bragging is excluded. Now, all of you know this from probably being in false religion or from now seeing false religion. False religion is nothing more than bragging. It's what it's all about. Glory toward man. It's humanism, self-righteousness, self-love. It's humanism. In this gospel, there's no boasting. It's excluded. So the question goes on. Through what law? Law of works? If it, if it was by works, you'd be able to brag. He deals with that in the next chapter, in chapter 4. He said if it, if it was of works, you'd be able to brag and, and God would actually owe you something. It wouldn't be by grace. God, God would be indebted to you. But he says, no, it's not, not of the law of works, but through the law of faith. Keeps bringing us back to this theme concerning faith. The word law there, it's typical it's, it's used in so many other places. It means a regulation, rule, or principle. And this principle of grace and of Christ's righteousness and of this outworking of the gospel of establishing righteousness, this is the thing that is the principle of our mind that regulates how we think that excludes boasting. Because this took place outside of ourself, he did it, we didn't. He did it for us, and we don't reciprocate and affect it by something we do for him. Then it's by faith. It's by and through believing it. He says it, we just believe it. So we must be clear here that faith or belief itself is not the righteousness. So God doesn't look at your faith and say, good job. 
and then focus the spotlights there on your faith. The spotlight's on Christ. We've already dealt with that. That's the gospel. The gospel is Christ. The righteousness is not your faith itself, but the object of your faith, which is Christ, his person and his worth. It's, it's what our faith looks to. It's Christ and him crucified. And that's the righteousness by which we are justified. Verse 28, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. And I'll add commentary by the object of our faith without the works of the law. And then a natural question by religious people. Do we make void the law through faith? You know, that's. I said that Christ had to do something with the law. So for one thing, we're not throwing out the law. Christ had to do something with it. But then there's the other religious bunch and says, after we talk about just the gospel and focus on Christ and don't bring man into it, we, we just give a clear, strong, dogmatic, bold statement about here's the gospel. It's outside of ourselves. It's done. Here's the objection. It comes from religious people. But what you're saying is now you... You can just do whatever you want. Don't you got to do this, do that? And they, they just start, boom. I, I told you guys, sometimes I run that test on Facebook. I'll put a, just a statement about the gospel by itself. You'll see some amen, like, heart, heart buttons, this, that. And it's just, well, I'm, I'm just waiting. How long is it going to take? Here comes somebody. But, 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 don't you got to do, don't you got to do, don't you got to do. <laughs> That's, that's what's going on here. That's what Paul's anticipating here. We don't make void the law through faith. God forbid or let it not be. We actually establish the law. We establish the law. So the accusation is antinomianism. Or you guys are against the law by what you're saying about this God. You're against the law. That comes from the legalist. Those that think that they're accepted by some type of a work or obedience or law keeping in some degree or some lower level of law. That's the accusation that comes from the legalist to the believer. And that accusation, Paul talked about it here. That's a couple thousand years ago and still alive and well today. Still happens. So they're trying to gain acceptance by the law of God. And by doing that, they accuse those that know what Christ did with the law, how that Christ satisfied it. But they're the ones lowering the standard of the law and saying, you do this with the law to be accepted by God or gain favor with God. They're the ones that are the antinomians. They are against the law. The legalist is the true antinomian. He is dishonoring the law of God by saying, You'll accept people by doing this thing with the law. And so they're raising up man. We know where man's at. He's, he, he's in the dust. And they're lowering down God. And they're trying to do this mediation thing through some form of obedience to gain favor. Can't be done. Go back to our uh, text. I'm going to wind this, wind this up. And I guess I'm going to do a part two because we're kind of at the area here after verse 4 here. I'm going to look at it just a second. After verse 4, 
we can make this other one a second part that really gets to our the title of can talks about confession what that all means there's a big confusion about what this thing of confession even is back in our text uh, chapter 10 and verse 4 for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness or in other words for justification to be declared righteous this is the one you want, the Lord, our righteousness, and he's the end of the law in reference to you messing with the law. You can't you can't affect it. He has he has done it. He's done it perfectly. Don't mess with that. He's the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. There again is that faith. This is this doesn't speak to unbelievers at all. An unbeliever is still under the law. He's under the curse of the law. I don't care what dispensation we are in. If he's not a believer, he's under the law. He's accountable to the law. After he becomes a believer by grace, not under the law. You're under the dominion of grace, justified, now in a state of perfect righteousness, and sin cannot even be charged to your account anymore. Well, then what do you do after that? I'm going to end with this. You just say, well, now I understand that. And since it's such good news that I'm perfect in Christ and I can never be charged with sin again, I'm going to just sin all I can. I'm just going to sin up a storm. I'm going to open up a sin credit card and just max it out, get a new one, max it out. It's ridiculous. I don't even know anybody that has ever come close to thinking that. But... The accusers say that's what we think. I'd like to follow some of those people around that accuse me of that. Stand back about 50 feet and just watch what they do, where they go, what they say. I'm welcoming anybody hang out with me and do that. We'll talk about the gospel and I'll put you to sleep. And you'll see me do some stupid stuff probably in between. <laughs> Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. And we drive to obey everything he tells us to do, knowing that it has nothing to do with what we've been talking about this morning. And it does not affect this righteousness that was established. That's why it's good news. All right, any questions or comments?